Well, this morning we are finishing a short sermon series uh, we have been doing for the last several weeks, going through John chapter 17. And we've entitled this sermon series, Morning and Evening. In John chapter 17, we read about the prayer of Jesus that he prayed shortly before he went to the cross. And one of the things that we hope this sermon series will do in the life of our church is give us a high view of prayer. If we have a low view of prayer, we will give little time to prayer. We will see little value in spending time in prayer. But if we have a high view of prayer, then we will rightly understand its value and we will rightly give it much time. Through prayer, we acknowledge that we are completely and utterly dependent upon the Lord. We acknowledge that we need Him. We acknowledge that apart from Him, we will bear no good fruit. And so we want to be a people who depend upon the Lord. We want to be a people who seek the Lord. We want to be a people whom the Lord uses to do His will, to carry out His good purposes. Pastor Sam shared a quote from Martin Luther uh, that, was, uh, that he supposedly said. Martin Luther supposedly said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. He was so busy, he had so much on his plate that he believed it was necessary to spend three hours in prayer. Sometimes when we get busy, prayer is the first thing to go. We scuttle prayer. I'm so busy, I don't have time to pray. But Martin Luther's mindset regarding prayer was, I'm so busy that I must pray. Brothers and sisters, may that be true of us. May we have a high view of prayer. May we understand our complete and utter dependence on the Lord. And may we set apart time to pray. In our passage, John chapter 17, we see that Jesus prayed. And if you want to know what was on the mind of Jesus as he prepared to give up his life, then John 17 is a good place to begin. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying John 17, where we've read what Jesus prayed. As he faced the end of his time on earth, he prayed earnestly for the things that were of utmost importance to him. So with that in mind, keeping in mind that Jesus was praying for the things that were of utmost importance to him, as he faced the cross, let's read John chapter 17, verses 18 through 26. Again, that's John chapter 17, verses 18 through 26. Jesus prayed, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In verse 18, Jesus referred to himself as being sent into the world. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was sent into the world by God the Father. We see early in the Gospel of John why God the Father sent God the Son into the world. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There is a good reason that this is one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. What is written in this passage is extraordinary. God the Father, who loves the Son with a perfect love, sent the Son into the world to save sinners who had rejected him. His reason for sending the Son was his love for the world. He sent Jesus to save us, not because he needs something from us, but because he loves us. When God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, when God created man in his image, he did not do so out of any sense of need. He was not deficient. He was not wanting. He was not lonely. He was not in need of anything. God did not create us because he needed us. He created us because he loves us. Similarly, God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners such as us, not because he needs us, not because he's lacking anything. It's not because we fill up what is missing in him. He did not send Jesus to save us because he needs us. He sent Jesus to save us because he loves us. He loves us even though we have rejected him as our king and rejected his purpose for our lives. Even though he created the first humans without sin to know him, love him, enjoy him, obey him, and glorify him, they disobeyed his good command, thus rejecting his rule over their lives. We too have all rejected him through our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy was not content to let us die in our sin apart from him. So he enacted his glorious plan of salvation. The Father ordained our salvation in eternity past. We read in Ephesians 1 that he chose us before the foundation of the world. And in accordance with his eternal and glorious plan of redemption, the Father sent Jesus into the world to save us because he loves us. Jesus also said that he was sent, just, just as he was sent into the world, so too was he sending his disciples into the world. Now there are uh, similarities, there are similarities between Jesus being sent into the world and his disciples being sent into the world. There are differences that we need to understand as well. David Mathis wrote, Jesus's sent status is in a class by itself. He was not only sent as the preeminent messenger, but sent as the message himself. Jesus's sentness 
is primary and ultimate. But whereas Jesus' sent status is in a class by itself, and his sentness is primary and ultimate, he did also send his followers into the world. There are differences, but there are also similarities. As Jesus was sent into the world, so too were his disciples. And he repeated this when he appeared to his disciples after his death and resurrection. In John chapter 20, verses 21 through 22, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. One of the important things we see is that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the mission of God. What do I mean by that? We see in Scripture that there is one God. There is one true and living God. We also see in Scripture that the one true and living God exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we all exist as one person. Even on your crazy days, you're still one person. We exist as one person, but God, who is different from us, who is distinct from us, exists eternally as three persons. We refer to this as the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, some critics of Christianity, some who will criticize our belief in the triune God will say, well, the the Bible never uses the word Trinity. That's not a problem. That's not a big deal. The word Trinity is not essential. The word Trinity is just a helpful term that concisely summarizes what the scriptures teach about God's nature, namely that he is one God who exists eternally as three persons. We see clearly in the scriptures that the Father is God. We see clearly in the scriptures that the Son, Jesus Christ, is God. We see that clearly in scripture that the Holy Spirit is God. We see that they have all been equally and eternally God. We serve one God who exists eternally as three persons. And what we see here in our passage is that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the mission of God. The Father sent the Son. The Son sends his disciples. The Father and the Son send God the Holy Spirit And the disciples are equipped with the Holy Spirit to carry out God's mission in the world. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in the mission of God. And we get to participate in his mission as well. What was true of the disciples with Jesus regarding being sent is true of all his disciples. Followers of Jesus are sent into the world to continue the mission of Jesus. David Mathis went on to say, We are sent to say and show that Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus and the good news about him. We are not the message, but mere messengers. We are messengers. Understanding that we are sent into the world as messengers is important for us to understand in regards to our new identity in Jesus Christ. When we become Christians, we receive a new identity. And our identity is bound up in Jesus because we are united to him. 
Because we are united to Jesus, because our identity is bound up in Jesus Christ, we recognize, we understand that we are sent into the world just as Jesus was sent into the world. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that God has sent you into the world to be his messenger, to proclaim this glorious message. In his prayer, Jesus went on to say, For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus consecrated himself for the sake of his followers. Consecrated means set apart or devoted to God's holy purposes. Jesus was set apart for God's purposes. He was devoted to God's purposes. And as the one who was sent by God the Father and was set apart for God's purposes, he went to the cross on our behalf. He first lived a perfectly sinless life. He perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law for our sake. And he died upon the cross for our sake. And he rose from the grave for our sake. Jesus did these things because he was consecrated for God's plan and purposes. He consecrated himself for our sake. Jesus consecrated himself so that those whom he sent would also be sanctified. We are called to be sanctified. And sanctified similarly means set apart. Devoted to God's purposes. And the ongoing process of sanctification means we are growing in holiness. It means we are growing in Christ-likeness. It means we are maturing in the faith. It means we are growing up into our salvation. God desires for us to be growing as Christians. We do not want to be stagnant in the faith. As those he has sanctified or set apart, we want to be growing in sanctification. Those who are sent are set apart. Lest we mistakenly think that this prayer was only for the sake of the disciples who were with him at the time, Jesus specifically said, I don't only pray for them, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for believers, present and future. In the book of Acts, the church grew and the gospel spread through the testimony of the apostles. Not everyone who believed heard the gospel directly from the apostles, but it was through their witness that the gospel spread and people believed in Jesus. Thus, Jesus prayed for everyone who would come to believe in him. He prayed for all of his followers. He prayed for us. What did he pray for? He prayed that we would be one as we are united to God who exists in perfect unity. As his time on earth was coming to an end and as the shadow of the cross loomed large, Jesus prayed for our unity. Do you see the importance of unity? Do you see how important our unity is to Jesus, the head of the church, the one who created and established the church, the one who has joined us to his church? Do you see how important unity is? Our unity with one another is rooted in our union with Christ. The Father and the Son enjoy perfect harmony and unity and we are called to share in that unity 
as we are united to Christ. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed perfect fellowship, perfect unity, perfect love for all of eternity. And as we are united to Christ by faith, then we share in the unity of our triune God. And our life together is meant to reflect the unity of our triune God. Our lives together are meant to reflect the character and nature of God. Jesus spoke of our union with him in John chapter 15 where he described himself as the vine and he described us as the branches. As we are united to him, we are to abide in him. As we abide in him, our lives will bear much good fruit. But apart from him, apart from abiding in him, we will bear no good fruit. We can do no good things apart from him. We can do a lot of things. We can busy our lives, but we will not bear good fruit apart from him. We don't want to live busy lives. We don't want to fill our lives with a lot of activity. We want to be a people who bear much good fruit. And brothers and sisters, that only comes through abiding in Jesus. That only comes through our union with Christ. As we abide in Jesus, our unity will reflect the character and nature of God. Moreover, our unity is meant to strengthen our testimony. Jesus prayed for our unity so that the world will believe in him. He prayed that we will have unity so that people will see us and believe the message we proclaim. Our unity is meant to have a persuasive effect. D.A. Carson wrote, Our unity is meant to be observable. It is not achieved by hunting for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. He also said, as the display of genuine love amongst the believers attests that they are Jesus' disciples, so the display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the revealer whom the Father has sent. Our unity together is meant to be so compelling that it can only be the case if Jesus is who he says he is. People ought to see our unity and recognize the truthfulness of the gospel. They must be able to see who Jesus is through our lives together. In their book entitled compelling, The Compelling Community, Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever tell a story about, uh, that took place in the life of their church, their church in Washington, D.C., called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. They said, my friend Bill Anderson first started visiting our church in his early 60s. He wasn't a Christian. At the time, he taught a popular class at Harvard University called The Madness of Crowds, which he teaches concepts of mass psychology by examining the phenomena of New England witch hunts, urban legends, and financial panics. But a career studying crowds did not prepare him for the local church. The diversity of the congregation impressed him, 
But beyond that, the genuineness of that diverse fellowship impressed him. In his words, quote, it was striking from the first moments I came through the door. It was clear that something special was going on. The relationship seemed not so much unnatural as highly uncommon. So I was introduced to the idea of a healthy church, a concept that had before eluded me. The power of this corporate witness provoked him. It undermined his conceptions of Christianity, and it began the process that would eventually lead to new life in Christ. A Harvard professor in his 60s who studied mass crowds came to faith in Christ because he observed the unity of the church rooted in Jesus Christ. Our testimony is meant to be strengthened and enhanced through our unity as a church. Our unity is meant to have a persuasive effect. But what Jesus said next in verses 22 through 23 was even more extraordinary. Jesus said that the glory the Father had given him, he had given to his disciples, which probably refers to the revelation of God in the person and ministry of Jesus. So he had given this glory to the disciples so they could be one, perfectly one, so that, number one, the world would know that you sent me, and number two, so that the world will know you loved them even as you loved me. Did you catch that? Brothers and sisters, did you hear what Jesus said in verse 23? The Father loved the disciples even as he loved Jesus. Let that sink in. The Father loves us even as he loves Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that hard to believe. When I reflect on my own sin, when I consider my own sinful thoughts, my own sinful attitudes, my own sinful words, my own sinful deeds, it becomes hard for me to believe that the Father loves me even as he loves Jesus. But this is the glory of the gospel. The gospel is that through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, we are united to Christ, so now the Father sees us as he sees Jesus. Through our union with Christ, the Father loves us even as he loves Jesus. As we seek to walk in unity with one another, we do so as those who are united to Christ and dearly loved by the Father. We do so remembering that Jesus prayed for our unity as he prepared for the cross. Again, I hope this impresses upon us the weight of our responsibility to pursue unity. Unity is not something we accidentally stumble into. We must pursue it with intentionality. We must walk in the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh. We must put to death the deeds of the flesh that threaten our unity. Jealousy, envy, rivalry, resentment, bitterness, gossip, slander. We must hate these things as the Lord hates these things because these things threaten our unity. The, threat, the unity that Jesus prayed for, the unity that Jesus died for. 
We must hate them and do away from them. We must not give them a foothold in our hearts and in the life of our church. We must put to death the deeds of the flesh and we must walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We will only have unity through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. The Holy Spirit produces in us peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. The Holy Spirit works in us to humble us so that we view others as more significant than ourselves. The Holy Spirit empowers us to lay ourselves down for the sake of others. We need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us so that we will walk in unity as Jesus prayed for our unity. In verse 24, Jesus expressed his desire for his followers to be with him and see his glory. He expressed his desire for his followers to be with him and see his glory. His desire for us to be with him and behold his glory in all of its fullness provides us with a wonderful reminder of our future. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Our future with him will not be an ethereal existence whereby we float around in the clouds. He is preparing a place for us that we will enjoy with glorified bodies. He is preparing a place for us and his desire is for us to be with him, to behold him in all of his glory. It is not a situation whereby he will merely tolerate us. He is not going to welcome us in reluctantly. His desire is for us to be with him and one day he will bring us home. The prayer that Jesus prayed ought to encourage us to keep our eyes looking forward. I hope you are encouraged when you think about our future. I hope you think about our future together often. We ought to remind ourselves daily of our future with the Lord. We have a wonderful and glorious future awaits us. We cannot lose it and no one can take it from us. No matter what happens in this life, our future with him is guaranteed. We will be with the Lord, enjoying his sweet presence, his perfect and powerful love in a glorious place with glorious bodies. I love the line in Amazing Grace where it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, I love that line because it reminds us that, oh yeah, we're going to be there for a long time. There will be a point in time when it's been 10,000 years. And we'll reflect back on our lives here and realize they were but a blip on the radar. But a blip on the radar. We are going to expend eternity with Him, enjoying His love in a glorious place. That is the future that awaits us, and we ought to be greatly encouraged regarding our future. As he came to the end of his prayer, Jesus focused on his relationship with the Father. He addressed him as righteous Father. God the Father is righteous. He is 
perfectly righteous. In him there is no sin. There is no stain of sin. And all of his judgments are perfectly righteous. He always does what is good and right, and every single one of his judgments is good and right. We can trust him because he is our righteous father. Jesus said, righteous father, I know you. Jesus has perfect and intrinsic knowledge of the Father. He has perfect and intrinsic knowledge of the Father because even though they are distinct persons, they are one in essence. In Colossians 1, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we read, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Because Jesus has perfect and intrinsic knowledge of the Father, because he is the image of the invisible God, and because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, he is able to reveal the Father to those who believe. And to know the Father is to receive his love. His love is in us as it is in Jesus. As we come to the end of our sermon series on John chapter 17, one of the big questions we need to ask is, how does the prayer of Jesus here in John 17 inform and instruct our prayers? How can we pray in a way that aligns with the prayer of Jesus. First of all, I think we should see that Jesus prayed to the Father. Moreover, in his instruction to his disciples on prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus instructed them to pray to the Father. He said, when you pray, you should pray, Our Father who is in heaven. As Christians, we pray to the Father. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. The reason that we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus is because we cannot have access to the Father in our sinful condition. But it's through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf as our mediator and as our high priest, uh, it's through his work that we have access to the Father. We are granted access to our loving Father through Jesus Christ. So we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the work of Christ to our hearts and lives and enables us to come before the Father. So our prayers ought to be distinctly Trinitarian. Our prayers ought to reflect the fact that we serve the one true and living God who exists eternally as three persons. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean it's wrong to pray directly to Jesus or directly to the Holy Spirit? No, it's not wrong to say, Jesus, please help me to abide in you. Or Holy Spirit, please help me today. Cleanse me of my sin. Bear much good fruit in my life. Those are not wrong things to pray. Those are not bad. But the normal, usual way we ought to pray as followers of Jesus is to pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. As we consider the final part of this wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed shortly before his death on the cross, I hope we will pray for our ongoing sanctification and our unity as a church so that we will be faithful in our ministry as those who are sent into the world to carry on the mission of Jesus. We ought to pray for our ongoing sanctification, pray that we will be a people who are growing in Christ-likeness, and we ought to be praying for our unity as a church family. We ought to be praying that we will grow in unity, grow in sanctification, grow in unity, so that we will faithfully serve as missionaries who are sent into the world to proclaim this message. We are called to be missionaries who proclaim the message. 
sent by God. And this takes on a lot of different forms. We are called to proclaim this message in our homes. It might be in a one-on-one conversation. It might be in your place of work. It might be with a neighbor. It might be with a family member. It might be to a group of people. We are called to proclaim this message in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of situations. We want to be faithful to do so. I also hope that you will be encouraged through the prayer of Jesus to pray for those who have not yet believed in him. Jesus prayed for those who were yet to believe. We see that Paul did this during his time as a missionary. He had a great burden for his fellow Jews who did not believe in Jesus. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he wrote, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. His desire, his burden was for them to be saved. And so he prayed to God that they would be saved. Likewise, we ought to pray for those who do not know Christ, that they will be saved. Whom has God sovereignly placed in your life that does not yet know Christ? Will you pray for them? Will you pray for the people in your life who don't know Christ? Do you have a burden for them to know Christ? If nothing else, I encourage you to pray for one person. Maybe it's a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend, whatever the case, pray for one person who doesn't know Christ and pray that they will be saved. As you pray for those who are not Christians, your desire for them to be saved will grow. Your burden for them will grow. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for those who do not know Christ. Let's pray that they will be saved. When Paul prayed for those who did not believe in Jesus, he understood what was necessary in order for them to believe. A little bit later in that chapter, in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, he said, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. As we pray for those who have not yet believed, we need to understand that we are those who are sent. We are sent to proclaim the good news that others might hear, that others might believe, that others might be saved. Jesus prayed for those who have not yet believed. Let us too be a people who pray for those who have not yet believed. Let us pray for them. Let us pray for our church. Let's pray for our sanctification, our unity. Let's pray for our faithfulness in regards to carrying out the mission of Jesus. Let us pray for these things. Let us pray that God will do this in and through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. You are awesome. We praise you. We praise you for your extraordinary love which you have given to us. You have loved us even as you have loved Jesus, and that is amazing. We praise you for this, and we thank you for this. As those who have been dearly loved by you, we pray that you will 
sanctify us. We pray that you will grant us unity. We pray that you will help us to understand that we are sent into the world to proclaim your message. We pray that we will faithfully pray for those things. We pray that we will faithfully pray for those who do not yet know you. And we pray that we will faithfully do the work that you have sent us to do. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for including us in your mission. We do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.